in the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, he offered three trainings for overcoming the defilements that cause suffering. And the first training is a training in purifying our speech and our actions through the precepts. And it has the capacity to abandon the transgressive defilements, the acting out of defilements in a way that impinges on others or causes others suffering. But even if we are able to live in harmony with others through keeping a close eye on our speech and behavior, our mind can still be quite tormented. And so a second training was the purification of the mind. And that is essentially the development of mindful awareness to arrest and subdue the defilements when they arise in the mind. And we've been practicing both of these uh, through taking the precepts and just developing mindfulness. But even if we can, at times, temporarily arrest or subdue the defilements in the mind, conditions change unpredictably. And in order to ensure that we would not be entangled in defilements in an unpredictable future, the Buddha offered a third training, which is the training in wisdom or the purification of our understanding. What the purification of understanding involves is essentially developing vipassana insight. And that is to, of course, see the arising and passing away of phenomena, but specifically to see three universal characteristics, three qualities, if you will, the three characteristics of phenomena, the first of which is that all things are impermanent. And when we develop the understanding, not from thought, but from direct perception, and deep, insightful understanding that all things are impermanent, it has the capacity to subdue and eventually uproot this feeling that we get. It's really kind of an unexamined assumption that, you know, when you're experiencing, you know, pain in your life, there's a feeling that it's going to last forever or it's going to be this way forever. And even though we know everything is impermanent, the feeling is still that it's going to be there forever. And to uproot that belief, that wrong view from the mind, takes extraordinary depth and continuity of awareness and insight. And the second insight is the insight into dukkha, or the painful, unsatisfactory characteristic of phenomena, which 
overcomes, ultimately uproots this, again, unexamined assumption that if I could just get what I want, I'd be happy. And if you really look at that, well, it ain't so. But we kind of are, keep looking for the exception to the rule. And we will keep looking. And so until that understanding is seen so continuously and so profoundly and so uh, subtly, there's still a possibility that we're going to believe that. And so that insight into the dukkha characteristic is an essential part of freeing the mind from wrong understanding. And the third understanding, the third characteristic, the third understanding that we gain through the development of insight is the understanding of how conditional, impersonal, ephemeral, evanescent everything is. Especially this sense of self. And it overcomes this and eventually uproots this, again, an unexamined assumption that it's all about me. <laughs> well, it isn't. <laughs> you know, and again, that's not an easy understanding to come to or to establish as the default setting of the mind. And so it takes a, a continuity and a refinement of awareness and understanding and the continuity of it to just see that characteristic in every moment. Not easy to do. But this teaching of the Buddha on the impersonality or the not-self characteristic, the anatta characteristic of phenomena is a teaching that's unique to the Buddha. And it is a subtle understanding, but it's important that we hear it and understand it as best we can in order to support our practice. Now, the kind of basic outline of the teaching on the anatta characteristic is that neither the body nor the mind, individually or collectively, contains or constitutes an enduring entity that we commonly refer to as self. There just isn't. However, that is not easily verified. It's kind of counterintuitive and it's not apparently verified by our experience. Jnana Sobhana speaks about this searching for a self. He says, seeking for a self among the processes of mind and body is like seeking music among the musicians and instruments of an orchestra. And when we look, all we find is an assortment of people, chairs, instruments, and pieces of paper. We cannot find any germ or nugget of a symphony 
curled inside of a horn or a violin or nesting in a musician's pocket or squeezed between the pages of a score. There is no self to a piece of music. It comes into being depending on many conditions, the work of the composer, the written directions, the musical instruments, the efforts of the players, etc. And when these conditions cease or disperse, the music stops. In the same way, the self exists only in a conventional and illusory sense. Ultimately, no I can be found, only a synthesis of factors working together dynamically. Hmm. Okay. But the Buddha said this wrong understanding of self has everywhere and at all times most misled and deluded humankind. It is this wrong view which has most misled and deluded us forever. It causes suffering. Attachment to a sense of self causes us a tremendous amount of suffering. Last night Joseph spoke about craving the craving for sensual pleasure, the craving for a cloned me in the future, and kind of, kind of the end of it all. And they all involve a me. You know, when you plan the future, you don't make plans for someone other than you. You're always in there. <laughs> and so, we are creating this sense of self over and over and over again. <laughs> Through our awareness and the continuity of our attention, we begin to gain in the knowledge of the anatta characteristic. And we do that by disaggregating the tangled web of thoughts, feelings, emotions, plans, memories, sensations that, when synthesized, create the appearance of me, I, me, mine. It's important to hear these teachings so that we can really understand what the Buddha taught, what is distinctive about the Buddha's teachings, how they point to a subtlety of freedom and that when we see in our practice confirming evidence that we'll recognize it. The Buddha was concerned about suffering and the end of suffering. And everything he looked at and how he understood it, the frame that he understood what he saw was, does it lead to suffering or does it lead to the end of suffering? There's a lot we could know that doesn't have much to do with that. But the Buddha didn't entertain that kind of questions or teaching. He was really interested in, does it lead to suffering or not? Before I go into the teachings on Anatta, I want to talk a little bit about 
how belief comes from experience or what the relationship is between belief and experience. And I want to use an example. We all believe that the earth revolves around the sun. Universal agreement? Yes, okay. But that's not from our direct perception. If we stand here and we watch the sunrise over there, and we watch all day, it seems to set over there in the West. And it appears from our direct perception that the sun circles around the earth. That's our direct perception. But we don't understand it that way. We have been told by others who are able to interpret what they see or understand what they see more subtly than we. And so they've watched the sun and other things, and they have understood in a more subtle, in a refined way, that no, the sun doesn't circle around the earth. The earth spins on an axis and circles the sun, contrary to our perception. And they have told us that over and over <laughs> and over again. And we've probably had exams <laughs> years ago to, to make sure that we believe that. Now we believe it. You know, and it is contrary to our experience, or it seems to be in opposition to our perception. Well, the same or similar transformation of wrong understanding is required in realizing the liberation that the Buddha pointed to. And it's the transformation of our misunderstanding of self. So I am going to initiate the, <laughs> the transformation for some of you and, and kind of further the transformation for some of you, encouraging you to let go of believing wrongly what you perceive. So there's two, there's two big players in this field, the body and the mind. And together and individually, we quite naturally feel and believe that it's me. It's my body, it's my mind, it's who I am. I'm in, I'm in the body and the mind is in me. And that's pretty reasonable, isn't it? <laughs> But the Buddha said, the body is like a clump of foam. <laughs> well, that's pretty insubstantial. <laughs> but before we understand the body as a clump of foam, we see its appearance. And we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, yep, that's me. Same person as I was yesterday. And we get identified with our appearance. Not only the general appearance, but we get identified with the size and the shape and the color and the texture. And we are pretty particular about what we see in the mirror. And if it doesn't kind of 
reaffirm our sense of ourself, we get concerned. You know, we're getting a little too dark, we're getting too light, we've got some pimple in the wrong place, and the hair's too long, and gravity's beginning to win, and, you know, it's like, woo, you know, and just because of our identification with the body, you know, we feel some anxiety, we feel some uh, uh, shame, we feel, you know, self-conscious. This is suffering, unnecessary suffering due to identification with the body. But not only are we identified with the appearance, we're identified with the functioning of the body whether the body is healthy and strong, whether we are sick, whether we um, have a lot of vitality, or whether we're just kind of uh, lethargic, whether we have good eyesight, good earsight, good other capacities in the body. And, you know, when they don't work so well, we take it personally, you know. Uh, and we've all had experience where, you know, the body's not working well, or when the body gets sick, we think, I mean, we feel, you know, there's something wrong with me. You know, I, I am really suffering because the body is just doing its natural thing. I mean, bodies get sick, they grow old, they pass away. It should be no surprise when it happens to us. But when it does happen to us and we get sick, we think there's something wrong. This is just the nature of the body. We should, we should expect it. But because of our attachment to it being and functioning in a certain way, it causes suffering. So we get attached to the, and identified with the appearance, the functioning, even our statistics. How's your cholesterol level? <laughs> or your blood pressure? I mean, you know, I got 240 cholesterol. Mmm, bad. Mm-hmm. Got to watch out what I eat. And... Those are the easy statistics. There's other statistics which are a little more personal, a little more private, that we don't want to talk about in public, but we're pretty concerned if they get outside of the normal and acceptable range. It's just the body doing its thing. We cannot control it. We can, I mean, we can watch our diet, we can, do, we can get all the vitamins we want and do our right exercise and our yoga and stretch and breathe right and live in a good environment and all that, and the body's still going to get sick, grow old can't stop it, is what the body does. So as we're identified with our body, or as we identify with our body, we identify other people as their bodies. It's a burdensome responsibility to maintain this body. You know, day in, day out, 24-7, you've got to feed it, clothe it, bathe it, groom it, dress it, rest it, you know, move it around so it doesn't get too uncomfortable. That's a burden, in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> and you know what? You can't get anybody to do it for you. <laughs> so, in the process of it, we, we're self-conscious, we feel shame, we feel disgust, we feel excited sometimes. But it involves an obsessive compulsion to try to keep the body pleasant. We don't like unpleasant. We'll do anything we can to avoid unpleasant. This is a lot of, this is a lot of effort, a lot of, lot of attachment there. When we come to practice and we start to pay attention to the body, you know, we've all had classes in anatomy and we know what the body looks like outside. We have some idea 
or at least a kind of a graphic idea of what it looks like inside. You know, we know where the organs are and muscles and bones and, and all that stuff. And we close our eyes and we sit on the cushion and that's not what we see at all. What we see is, or what we discover, what we experience, what we know from our direct awareness is aching, heat, pressure, pain, throbbing, pulsing, vibrating, tingling, numbness to begin with. Our concept of the body is not confirmed by our experience of awareness of the body. In the, in the Buddhist understanding of the body, you know, we do this 3D mapping, three-dimensional mapping of the body, and we locate all these sensations. And they're called, in the Buddhist teachings, the earth element, hardness, softness, the fire element, heat or coolness, the water element, uh, wetness and uh, temperature. And then there's the uh, air element, pressure, vibrating, pulsing. Now, when we see the body in this way, hardness, pressure, vibrating, pulsing, is that you? It's really hard to say, oh, this vibrating, that's me. That's who I am. This vibrating, this pressure, this pulsing, this aching. We feel it, yes. But to claim it as me and mine and who I am really doesn't make any sense. We see clearly, oh, this is just the nature of the body. This is what the body does. You know, it's not peculiar to me. Everyone experiences the same thing. When we have the opportunity to be with someone who is uh, about to leave this life, they're old and the body is really collapsing, maybe their mind is still really sharp and alert, you can see that that person is not their body. There's this person. I mean, the person personality is still there in all of its radiant, kind of like dynamic. Here I am, and the body is gone away. Or when you see a newborn baby or someone who's, you know, a year old. They are who they are, and their body is just like kind of getting in the way of, <laughs> you know, kind of not like responding to who they think they are. And you... You see this, and you get, a, you get to see and understand that we have to learn to own this body, to claim this body, to get identified to this body. The, uh, I remember hearing a story that when the Karmapa, I, think, I believe it was the Karmapa was dying years ago in, of cancer, very painfully. His students around him were just so upset that he was suffering and in so much pain. and You know, at some point it kind of got... Maybe he was just kind of fed up with him. He said, hey, look, wait, wait a minute. You know what? Don't worry. Nothing happens. The body dies. If, it's not, if you're not strongly identified with it, if you're not totally my body, nothing happens. The body dies. I have had a history of, uh, over my life of some... Uh, abdominal distress, intestinal distress. And I've tried everything. I've gone to every kind of medical practitioner you can think of. I went to the allopathic doctor, and they know they do a stool sample and do 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 and they say, you know what, you got you know, take Rolaids. 
<laughs> Modify your diet and take relays. Okay. You know, well, that, later I went to a chiropractic and they kind of, you know, did some tests and said, hey, look, your number three is kind of not in line with your number four and and kind of let me put you back into shape and that'll fix you right up. Later I went to an acupuncturist. They checked my pulse. You know, they say, you know what? Your kidney meridian or your liver meridian or something like that's a little bit out of balance or whatever. You know, here, let me give you some needles. And they stick needles in your ear and things like that in order to try to fix. Still got the symptoms. Uh, tried every kind of diet you can imagine. Went to Burma. It was in the monastery. They have a Burmese uh, medical uh, tradition which involves uh, testing uh, you and then offering uh, relief. So I went to the Burmese doctor and their way of testing you is to uh, do some muscle testing and other things. And one of the tests for me was to put a cigar between my big toe and my other toe, and then to do some muscle testing. Hmm? Later, he lit the cigar, put it between the same two toes, and did some other testing. And the difference between the tests revealed to him that he needed to massage my nerves in my leg. It was the most painful, excruciating massage I ever had. <laughs> Anyway, out of robes, back in the States, I went to someone who works with crystals. Mm. Here we go. Did the test, laid me down, a little purple here, a little green here. <laughs> there are many ways, many different ways to understand intestinal distress. But the end of suffering comes not from the prescription, but from paying attention to, well, what what is this distress? What, what is it like? Oh, it's, it's hardness, it's pressure, it's pulsing, it's bubbling, it's gurgling, it's, it's, you know, it's hot, it's, 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 it's... And learning to be aware of and in a balanced relationship to all that. Whether there's medicine or not. It's the working with the mind's relationship to how we experience, how we directly experience the body. That's where the end of suffering comes. There was another time in my practice in, in Burma where it was just there was a lot of momentum in practice and a lot of clarity about the nature of things. And I was having a kind of experience where there just really wasn't much feeling, much experience of the body. And I couldn't feel that I, whether I had clothes on or not. <laughs> I was wearing robes, I was in the mud. And I couldn't tell from feeling, because it was just, well, there was no limit to the body. There was no size, shape to, to the body. It was just, and I would, before I would go out of the room, I'd always have to look to see <laughs> if I had my robes on and walk. So I was telling my teacher, I said, you know, I can't, if you, uh, I, I always have to check to see if I have my clothes on before I... <laughs> and he said, now you know what it's like when you just come out of your mother's womb and you haven't yet gotten identified with your body. Hmm. Well, I was thankful for the explanation. <laughs> so we can see that when we're identified with the body as its appearance, size, shape, functioning, there's bound to be 
a sense of self entangled with it that suffers. But when we pay attention through really very continuous and precise awareness, we can see through the illusion of this body is mine, is me. And we see its natural functioning in the grosser sense. And we see how subtle and ephemeral and insubstantial the body really is in an empirical sense. When we really feel what the body is without the conceptual overlay of anatomy, it's just, well, it's like a clump of foam. Hard to be identified with, hard to suffer from. And so we begin to gradually disentangle our sense of self from this direct and immediate experience of the body. Now we have the mind. Or in addition, we have the mind. Now the mind has a lot of capacities. But the mind, of um, the base of mind is consciousness. Or we would say consciousness or the knowing is the capacity of the mind. The Buddha said consciousness is like a magician's illusion. There's the creation of some illusion in front of you that we believe. But it's just an appearance that has no substance. The major activity of consciousness is thoughts. Supported by perceptions and feelings and intentions and, and all the other mental states, but the primary activity is thoughts. So because thoughts are the major manifestation of the mind or consciousness, I want to speak about that. Thoughts articulate experience. And each one of us is well aware now of this narration of my life, the story of my life. And the narration, well, we actually think it's a narrator. A narrator takes every experience we have and weaves it into the story of my life, my personal history. And the continuity of this narration creates the illusion that there is someone narrating. There's someone in, there's someone in my mind. <laughs> well, it's me. <laughs> Telling me about what I am experiencing. So really there's this monologue that is weaving into the story of me everything that happens. All sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch, thoughts, feelings, plans, memories. The whole package is woven into the tapestry of Steve. So here, here we are. Yogis on retreat at Spirit Rock. Day number seven of the retreat. How am I doing? You know, this is a good retreat for me. And, you know, today was a little better than the first day when I was really struggling. And, but I had a good sitting right after breakfast. That was really good. You know, but then that one after lunch. And <laughs> the narration is going on, and we believe it. 
We believe that's really what's happening to us. And the story gets repeated over and over and over and over again. And there's no space in the mind where there's no story. Everything that you've ever experienced is in the story. But it's just a story that we've gotten identified with. When we believe the story and it is supported by external conditions, okay. But when the story that's going on in our head isn't being supported by others or external reality, there's conflict and we suffer. The narrator suffers. Because sometimes conditions don't reflect who we think we are. One way of um, noticing this, or we should say mindfulness, begins to unravel the tapestry of self. And it does that thread by thread, knot by knot. So when we look at what's going on in the mind and we see this narration and we start to really refine our understanding of what's going on there, we see momentary thoughts, feelings, judgments, perceptions, memories, intentions, plans, and they're just strung together with a lot of glue of me. I am thoughts, feelings, memories, plans. What we see is that the narration or the narrator is really just a sequence of thoughts we identify with. But sometimes there are contradictory stories in the mind. Sometimes we find conflict within the narration. And this poses a kind of a problem, you know, Part of me wants to go this way, and part of me wants to go that way. And it can cause some stress. So when we start to practice, or as we develop practice, we begin to see how fleeting these thoughts are. And we begin to see that they come quite independent of our wishes. Things happen. You know, thoughts come. Well, just ask yourself, do you choose the thoughts you notice? No. They just come. From where? Well, where do your thoughts come from? Joseph used to say, the person behind you. <laughs> but I think it's the person beside you sometimes. <laughs> anyway, what we see are these discrete, momentary, and clearly very impersonal concepts pop up into the mind. And the narrator is really quick. It can pick and choose and agree or disagree with them in a split second. This is me, this is not, this is me. This, I like this one, I don't like this one. I want to be this one, I don't want to be that one. As we begin to note, take note of each of these discrete moments, we take apart this illusion of this, this big me that is kind of, it's all happening to. One, way, one thing I like to suggest to people in their practice is to 
instead of narrating your practice, which it's very easy to do. You sit down, okay, now I'm sitting, I'm watching the breath, and it's doing this, and it's, okay, now I'm feeling a little, and now I'm doing this, and now I'm doing that. And we just kind of turn it into kind of a sing-song narration of everything that's happening. If we can step back and kind of turn the narrator off and just note, take note of what we actually experience, it's a thought, a feeling, a judgment, and we see just how discreet and separate and impersonal all that we have woven into the narration really is. And in this way we begin to see through the illusion that I am the narrator. There's me in here who's doing this narration. There was a period of time in my practice in Burma where I went to Burma with this tremendous enthusiasm. I was on fire to uh, practice and to really understand what is going on in practice. I'd only had 10 years of retreats in the States and hadn't gotten that much. Well, I'd gotten prepared for insight. And I went and I was just on fire. And for a couple of weeks or a few weeks, I was, I could really see day by day there was improvement. I was just getting more continuous and more clear and more steady and really understanding what was going on. And then, well, one day it just all, it wasn't so good. And <laughs> that was my perception. And I thought, oh, geez, something happened. It's, it's not working. And at that time I was reporting to Upandita every day. And my, my time was two o'clock. And come two o'clock, and I was still having a miserable day. So I didn't want to go. So I just went to the door of Upandita's cottage, and I just, you know, usually I walk in and bow and give my report. I just came to the door of the cottage, and I just stuck my head in and said, you know, <clears throat> I'll skip today, I'll be in tomorrow. <laughs> and he goes, huh? <laughs> as, he, as he does. And the translator said, oh, come in, come in, come in. So I was petrified. I was just so scared. And I went in and I just did not want to tell him how bad I was doing because I took it personally. I, I really thought that what was going on is me. So Upandidi was very uh, uh, encouraging me to, to tell him what was going on because before I'd been so enthusiastic. And he was just like, really? a very kind uncle, like a kind uncle, and just like trying to draw me out. What's going on? It's okay, you can tell me, you know? <laughs> Even if it's really bad, you can tell me. So I just kind of blurted it all out, how bad it was. And as I was blurting out my judgment of how bad it was, he just got more and more excited and happy. <laughs> At the end of which he said, you know, sometimes when the yogi thinks they're doing really good, the teacher knows, well, not so good. <laughs> and sometimes when the student, the yogi, thinks they're really doing pretty bad and pretty not good, the teacher understands they're really doing pretty good. And he encouraged me to just see things as they are and not weave them, basically, weave them into the story of who I am. It was the best advice. I go up. Because from then on, I could see this mind 
this mental activity is just impersonal commenting about what's going on. And it doesn't know what it's commenting about. It, it's got its own judgments and standards and likes and dislikes. And it is not informed. It's just deeply conditioned into a personal view of things. And the Dharma is something other than that. And I could stop judging. With that, I could stop judging what the narrator was saying. My mind could be yabbering on about how bad it is, how good it is. It didn't matter. That's not really what's happening. And just seeing this is the way it is. So relieving of the suffering that comes from being identified with the mind, its likes and dislikes. And to just step back and say, it doesn't matter whether I like it or not. If you're seeing the way it is, that's dharma, that's insight. What he explained to me at that time was that the mind, later, not at the time, but sometime later, he explained that the mindfulness was so precise, so clear, so quick, that it was seeing each moment as a discrete, independent event. And there was no linkage between this moment and the next moment. And so by the time I got to the next moment, I couldn't remember to be that I was mindful of the last moment or to be mindful of this moment. And so it's not only was I seeing that each moment's experience was fleeting, temporary, impermanent. The knower, the knowing, or the narrator, was also impermanent. That there was no continuity to what I had felt to be the me who was doing the work. This is, this is a little unsettling. Well, not a little. It's very unsettling. Because the narrator starts being broken up. And the story gets very discontinuous. And it's just impersonal stuff happening, being observed by other impersonal stuff. And your sense of identity, sense of self, that's so fused with the narrator, is not there. Well, it's predictable reactions of fear and you know, both excitement and fear and terror and oh my God, what's happening, and judgment, and guilt. and But with encouragement, you learn to, was able to learn to see the, the mind too is just another impersonal passing show of stuff. One of the uh, functions of the mind in all of this is perception. The perception is as... Andrea mentioned the other night, is the recognition of what's going on, the recognition of what is being known. The Buddha said that perceptions are like a shimmering mirage. Now, some of you may have had this kind of experience where something comes up, you know, you've got a problem, you've got a conflict in your life, you've got a problem, you've got a, a decision to make, you've got something that's unresolved. So it comes up, and in one sitting, you look at it and you say, yeah, that's it, now I got it, okay. Clear decision, I know what's going on, fine. 
Next sitting you come in, or at another time you take a look, and you see a completely different facet of the same situation, the same problem. And you see it from another angle, and your former confident decision is now shaken. Now you can't, well, you've got to change your mind. And you see, as, as you pay attention, you see multiple facets of the same situation. And you can recognize, or you see, that there's not, there's not just one way of seeing things. You see many, many ways of seeing things, seeing one thing. And so the understanding begins to grow that we, we don't control. We don't have control over how we see things. Perception is an impersonal function of the mind. It does what it does. It just works. And we have to live with the result. One of the uh, experiences of perception, or the activity of perception, is memory. Because we remember how we saw things in our life. And it is perception that has registered events as they've gone by. And so we have this uh, memory of who we are. And we have all sculpted this memory, edited this uh, package of memories to present ourselves to ourselves and to others as we would like to be seen. And then we come here and we start looking at, well, I think all of us, in some, to some degree or other, go through what I call the personal history review. <laughs> and our life comes up for review. And all the things that we've done, we get a chance to look at. And if, we, if there's no conflict in the mind, or there's no tension in the mind, there's no dissonance in the mind, it just goes by fine. But where there's a place of dissonance, or conflict, or tension, we get to see it over and over and over again, until we come to, until we see what is really going on there. One of the um, functions uh, of this personal history review, or one of the things that comes up, is we often uncover memories that we had long forgotten. And with this memory comes a sense of self. You know, we've done something in the past, and it's shameful. And when it comes up for review, I mean, we were, we were able at the time to kind of rationalize it away and bury it under, uh, you know, our sense of self. Now we see it as it really was, and we feel how ashamed we were. Our practice is to receive this memory, receive the sense of self that comes with it, and let go of it. And we let go of it, not by pushing it away, not by burying it, but by feeling it, and fully taking in this feeling of shame, or anger, or fear, or jealousy, or whatever, whatever it is, hurt of one form or another. And take it in, and learn now with this momentum of mindfulness, the strength of mindfulness that we now have, to, that we can feel it. We can allow ourselves to feel it. 
we can know it, we can see it correctly, we can experience it, and we can let it go. It's not easy. But this is the, uh, the healing work, if you will, of awareness. Is to, I mean, it, it seems to have this capacity to uh, recover all that we've buried in the past or all that we have misperceived in the past. And we get the chance to perceive it correctly. Don Juan, in teaching Carlos Castaneda, said, A spiritual warrior doesn't need a personal history. One day, he or she finds it's no longer necessary and drops it. The art of being, the art of a warrior is to balance the terror of being with the wonder of being. When we can open to this personal history which we've identified with and see that it's not who we were, it's not who we are, we're not limited by it, we don't need it. We can open to it, I mean, it, we can open to it, that's terrifying, and we can let go of it and live in awe, with awe of all that we are, all that we perceive, all that comes to us. As many of you know, in my earlier adult years, some would say late adolescent years, uh, I was a deadhead. And when the dead went, I went. And I really enjoyed going to Grateful Dead shows. And, you know, uh, it was uh, a strong identity, you might say, that I had. And I really got uh, a lot of uh, pleasant uh, memories of being at dead shows. Well, then I got into the Dharma and I was practicing and I was living at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And then I had this extraordinary uh, karmic and uh, conjunction of conditions. I was doing a two-week retreat, 14 days, on the last day of which was a Grateful Dead show just an hour away. <laughs> okay, so here we go. You go on retreat for 14 days, quiet down, get really sensitive, open up, really get really sensitive, go to a show. It was unbearable. <laughs> it was so loud and so intense and so impactful. It was just totally unpleasant. <laughs> my sense, my identity of being a deadhead took a hit. <laughs> what I didn't realize is that even though I was hanging on to this idea, this concept of who I was, I had outgrown it. Let me tell you, you have outgrown every concept of who you think you are. Already. Practice helps reveal that. Practice helps reveal what sense of self, senses of selves, sense of selves, are you, that you're hanging on to that are no longer needed no longer accurate. And when we see them, we can let them go. The other um, activity of the mind that needs to be uh, pointed out is the uh, intention. You know, we were talking earlier about um, 
we gave the instruction to notice the impulse or the intention when it arises in the mind to do something, to shift the posture, to swallow, or to stand up, or whatever. It's important that we begin to pay attention to intention because if we don't see the impersonal arising of intention, we'll think that we are making a choice, that we are making a decision. Because an impulse arises in the mind to do something, and it seems like we choose to do it. We do it. We do what we do. We came to the retreat, we come to sit, we come to, we go to walk, we come here, we do this, we do that. And it seems to be, there seems to be someone in here who is making these decisions, who's being in control. So when we begin to pay attention to the arising of intentions, we see that intentions, impulse to do something, arises in the mind pretty pretty regularly, some of which we choose to follow up on and a lot of which we don't. <coughs> Nevertheless, intention is not me, is not mine, is not who I am. As we pay attention, we find that we do a lot of things that we would rather not. Or we find that some of what we do is just compulsive, obsessive, addictive, and we don't really seem to be making the choice intentionally. Or we see how much of our life is lived on automatic pilot. Have you noticed that? We, we do all kinds of things without really being there with it, for it, or to do it. <clears throat> so we begin to see how kind of out of control in some ways, or how much uh, lack of control we have over a lot of what the mind does, a lot of what the body does. And we get identified. When we're identified with being in control, we're definitely going to suffer. Because we're not. We see how impersonal intentions arise and condition behavior that we don't choose. Yes, we work to kind of get a handle on it, but we're not always successful. I was recalling, or in my practice one time, I remembered when I was a, a young boy, I was at a, a camp in the summertime, and you know, walking down a path with some other guys, we saw a squirrel up ahead. And so, you know, being young kids, we all picked up rocks to throw at the squirrel. Now, the intention was to pick up the rock to throw at the squirrel. Contrary to my utter expectations, I actually hit the squirrel and killed it. I didn't intend to kill the squirrel. I just intended to pick up the rock and throw it. But there was this feeling of guilt. And for a long time, I lived with this feeling of guilt that would, I guess we would naturally have because we did something that caused harm and did something wrong. What is guilt? Guilt is being identified with a sense of self constellated from conditions in the past. That event, long gone. Long gone. Long over, over with. The, the, the conjunction of conditions that came together there was, you know, some energy and some 
you know, intention to throw a rock and da da da. But was that me? And is that me still here? There was an intention, there was an action, there was a result. But when I saw and could feel what was actually involved there, I could let go of this feeling of that was me. I saw it. It's just conditions came together, a lot of ignorance, a lot of delusion. I didn't really feel aversion to the squirrel, but it still conditioned a sense of me, which was bad. We have a lot of similar experiences in our life. Times in the past where we've done something and the sense of self that's constellated there is not so pleasant to live with. So as we recover them, we begin to again feel this sense of self and learn how to let go of it. See how it was conditioned through this impersonal uh, mental, physical activity. And we can let go of this sense of self. The mind and the body have their own nature. They have their own capacities. When we identify with them as me and who I am, we're surely going to suffer. Through awareness, we can see just how impersonal, ephemeral, evanescent, conditional it all is. And gradually, we can step back. We can learn to let go of that identification. What happens when we let go of the identification with mind and body? I have a story. Teaching as I do, I get to travel around and different places to lead retreats like this, and so I get a lot of frequent flyer miles on United Airlines. And, you know, you can use your frequent flyer miles to get upgrades and to get to the top of the wait list, and, you know, there's some benefits for being a frequent flyer. Well, one time I had a flight from San Francisco to Boston, scheduled, and I had to get there probably to lead a retreat, but something changed and I had to get there a day earlier. Well, rather than rebooking the ticket, which was like buying a whole new ticket, I called the airlines and said, can I fly standby? And they said, sure. Lots of empty seats on the red eye from San Francisco to Boston. So I said, great, I'm coming down. I want to fly standby. Got to the airport. It was pandemonium. It was like there was just hundreds of people at the counter trying to get on the flight to Boston. And I said, what's going on? When I finally got to the counter, what's going on? One of our flights to Boston was canceled. All of those passengers are trying to get on the red eye to Boston. It's overbooked. I said, oh no, I, I want to fly that standby. And they said, not a chance. And I said, can I go to the gate and wait anyway? He said, yeah, you can go. So this is back when you go to the gate without, without your boarding thing. So I got a wait, uh, a wait list. I went up to the uh, boarding gate. Again, pandemonium there. So I went to the, the agent and I said, um, <clears throat> I'd like to fly standby. I'm a frequent flyer. I'm a premier frequent flyer, <laughs> just so you know. And they said, yeah, well, just sit over there and wait. There's three of you that want to fly standby. So I said, they got everybody on the plane and they was trying to get off on time. And they said to the three of us who were flying, wanting to fly standby, they said, come on down the plane, the, to the door of the plane, and we'll see if there are any empty seats. 
So they took the three of us down there. I said, I'm a frequent flyer, premier. Just, you know, in case there's one seat, you know, wouldn't you want to treat your frequent flyers very well? Okay. So I got down. They set everybody down on the plane as best they could. And they said, looks like there's one seat, one empty seat on the plane. I said, I'm a frequent flyer. <laughs> so I said, okay, okay. So they said, come on, you can sit up there. So I was so happy. I got on the plane. I was going to get to Boston on time. I was, I was going to meet my obligations. Sat down. I was stowing my things under the seat. And yeah, I was feeling really good. And then they found another empty seat over there. So they called the second person flying standby. And they said, oh, there's a seat. You can sit over there. So that's good. They closed the door of the plane. They're about to push off. And they said, this is a final destination check. This plane is going to Boston. Somebody in first class said, I'm not going to Boston. You know, they pushed the button, they stopped the plane, they opened the door, and he got off. So they said to the third person who wanted to fly standby, said, um, why don't you come here? You can sit in this first class seat. I said, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> I'm a freaking flyer. I'm a premier freaking flyer. <laughs> don't I get the first class seat? <laughs> they said, no, you got a seat, we're leaving on time, sit down, and... So, for the first half hour of the flight, I was fuming. I was so upset. They weren't treating me well. I was a freaking flyer. <laughs> and I wanted them to honor my relationship with them. <laughs> they weren't having anything to do with it. So after a half hour, I said, you know what? There's another five and a half hours to all the way to Boston. I said, if I, stay, if I keep up with this, I'm going to be in a wreck. So I let go. Just let go. I said, you know what? I got a seat. I'm on the way to, I'm on the way to Boston. No problem. So got to Boston. It was fine. Still a frequent flyer. Got to Boston on time. All I did was let go of my identification with the story in my mind. I'm a frequent flyer. I deserve special attention. That was causing me so much suffering. Everything else stays the same. Everything else. I'm still a frequent flyer. Same airline. They treat me better. <laughs> now I want to ask you something. Do you have a story in your mind about yourself that's causing you suffering? It's just a story. It's just a story that has been repeated over and over and over again to the point where you believe it. You think it's really you. It's just a story. You can let go of it. Any story that's in the mind who you think you are, the problems you think you have. It's just a story. Awareness will show you the story, and letting go will free you from the suffering. So let's sit for a moment and let the words settle down.
In his discourse to Magandhya, the Buddha said, I have long been tricked, cheated, and defrauded by this mind. For when clinging, I have been clinging just to the body, perceptions, feelings, intentions, and consciousness. And with my clinging as a condition has come to be this whole mass of suffering. Thank you for listening to Dhamma. There's 40 minutes for walking and then we'll have uh, sitting with the metta chanting again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.